Over the past couple of months, we've been going through Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. And we've seen that it's a very uh, royal sermon. It's a very kingly sermon from King Jesus speaking about the blessings for God's happy people who live in the kingdom. And he has been interpreting the law himself, who is the chief lawgiver. We've been watching that as Ron preached over the past couple weeks on the different antithesis statements of Jesus regarding murder, adultery, divorce, and oaths. And you know each statement because Jesus said, he starts out by saying, you have heard it said. You've heard it said. You've heard it said. You've heard it said. And today we're going to look at the final two statements of the six. So let's begin here. Matthew 5, 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. As we approach uh, this text, we have to be careful Because there are two slippery slopes that we want to avoid today. The first is viewing the Sermon on the Mount simply as personal ethics. If they are only personal ethics or simply a list of do's and don'ts, then we're living by the letter of the law, we're living under the law, and our righteousness will never exceed that of the Pharisees. So this is the the Pharisees who looked at the law and they said, I can do that. Don't murder. I haven't killed anybody this week. I haven't killed anybody this month. They look at the law and they said, I got that. I've done all this. The Pharisees were masters of false piety. You remember Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They were beautiful on the outside, but corpses on the inside. And there are many of these same Pharisees, these very, this very minute sitting in pews all across the world, sitting, standing behind pulpits. These are the Mr. Legalities of the world that John Bunyan warned us about. They would point us to Sinai rather than to the cross to be saved. The second slippery slope to avoid is to say that since we can't possibly follow the law perfectly, then we don't really even need to try. And the law is worthless to us. God's good decrees don't matter at all. Well, we know that's not true because true faith is married to good works. And though good works don't save us or add anything to our salvation, James says faith without works is a dead faith. And so a tree that is healthy will produce fruit naturally without coercion. I don't have to coerce my apple tree to produce apples. It does it because that's healthy to do. And a healthy Christian will produce works because they're healthy. So how should we read this passage then? I think, I think the proper way to interpret this text and uh, really the entire Bible on this side of the cross is through gospel glasses. Gospel-shaped glasses. And we read with humility and with total reliance on Christ, on what he's accomplished in view. We read as people who are no longer under the law, but under God's grace. 
So if you would like to follow along, let's go back to verse 38 here and see what Jesus says. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, where have they heard that said? What is Jesus referencing here that they would have understood? Well, this is from Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. Let's read it in context here. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then he shall, you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. You see, the law was meant to balance out consequences for actions and put both slave and master on the same equal footing. Eye for eye shows no partiality. However, it was meant as a means of justice, meant to be governed out by judges, by the, by the law of the land. It wasn't meant to be lone wolf justice. You could not just take vengeance into your own hands. This law limited retaliation and disproportionate revenge. In other words, people could only get back what they had lost. And so it discouraged crime in the first place. If you were one to go around cutting off hands, you, would, you yourself would have your hand cut off as well. In addition to being merciful, the law was a deterrent for committing crime. It also didn't allow families to get in on the act. Right? You, didn't, you didn't get your whole crew together and go take care of business. In our day and age, that's exactly what we do. Someone beats you up and you call the boys. And you go whoop the person and you give them Worse than they gave to you. You don't get mad. You get even. Right? And even in our standards is always worse than what we got. Alright? I'm just giving him what he deserves. Well, you know, it's not what he gave you. It's not justice. That's revenge. Verse 39. But I say to you. Notice the authority of Jesus here. You've heard it said. But I say to you. Jesus is going to interpret the law rightly. Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You see, Jesus gives four very real, very practical injustices that all of us, at at some point or other, in some way or another, have faced in life. And he says, here's how, when you face these injustices, here's how God's kingdom people are to respond. Now before we look at these four injustices, I want to stop and I want to tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying be a doormat and live with abuse. That's not what I'm saying. That's definitely not what Jesus is saying. However, he is calling believers to forego our rights. To forego our rights, to abandon our ideas of rough justice, and to be quick to repay evil with good. And so if you're the type of person that pushes back on this and you're, and you're feeling it and you feel a little uncomfortable, like, well, yeah, but, you know, I, you know, I, I should not, you know, that's good because it means you're listening. It's countercultural. Everything, Jesus is radical, he's countercultural, and it flies in the face of everything that I have been taught by the world. It's radical teaching for radical people. You see, the Christian is meant to be an entirely different sort of individual. We are meant to be light in a sea of darkness. We have been brought out of death into life. We're meant to stick out like sore thumbs to the rest of the world. And so when we read turn the other cheek, this is not a suggestion for Christians. It's a command. 
And any time God gives us a command, it means it's possible for us to do. And not only possible, but God will give us the power to do it through his spirit. Praise be to God for that. Again, I want to reiterate this. Turning the other cheek, as we're going to see, does not mean living with constant abuse. Do not do that. Get help if that's the case. The first injustice mentioned here by Jesus is a backhand slap. You all know this from movies. They take off their glove and they, they backhand slap. And it's meant to be more insulting than a punch even. And in that culture, you have an honor-shame society, as with many cultures around the world, and a backhand slap in public, especially, would be humiliating. Absolutely humiliating. A backhand slap was worse than a punch. And we, we, we can assume this because Jesus makes a point to say the right cheek. So you can imagine coming to somebody and walloping them. It's meant to humiliate. So in that context, Jesus is saying here, if someone shames you, if someone slaps you, don't be afraid to let them shame you a second time. Rather than retaliate, we should be quick to offer the other cheek and bear the shame of the insult. We're called to abandon our pride and die to self. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Well, here's a question. How many peacemakers do we have in the room today? Just natural peacemakers. You're always looking for peace. You're always, that's your go-to. I'm not sure if you can see this from where you're at. You couldn't with the mask, but I have two bruised cheeks from all the, you know, I let everyone slap me. I'm very good at this. Take my word for it. Holding myself to the first command, I think back to being on the basketball court. Anyone who's played sports, you know exactly how this is. And a guy comes up to you and he <clears throat> shoves you or he elbows you and he humiliates you. Maybe you miss a shot. And I, you know, I thought, I sat there and I thought, you know, Heath, turn the other cheek. In this moment, you just need to turn the other cheek. The refs will catch it. The referees will catch it. Is that what I thought? No, you better believe when he came back to me, I gave it worse than he got. I shoved him even harder. And even though I was on a Christian basketball team with a Christian coach, I won't name names because sometimes, you know, he's here and he may be watching. I won't name names. But maybe he encouraged me to shove back hard. We all encouraged each other. And when the sensei of the Cobra Kai dojo tells you to sweep the leg, you sweep the leg. We push back. We shove. Why? Why do we push back? Why couldn't I let it go? Because it was my right. Because that's what it means to be tough. He embarrassed me. I'm going to embarrass him back harder in front of everybody. That's court justice. It's fair and square. And that's how you play the game. Does that ring any bells with anybody who's played sports? And the problem with this mindset is that it doesn't stop on the court. It doesn't stop on the field. We take it into our workplaces, our homes, our relationships with each other. And yet Jesus here says, turn the other cheek. Forgo court justice. Forgo your rights. Be willing to set aside your pride. Set aside your revenge. Endure the shame and repay evil with good. Now again, this doesn't mean be a doormat. Jesus himself was slapped in the scriptures and he spoke up against the injustice in John 18, 23. He says this. He says, If I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Jesus doesn't turn his other cheek to this man. Instead, he calls him out on his cruelty. He calls out his injustice. 
I think of another example of this when uh, Saul is chasing David and they go into the, you know, he's hiding in the cave and Saul goes in to use the restroom and, and David very sneakily comes up behind him and cuts his robe. And Saul goes out and he calls him out and says, Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. What David does causes Saul to weep by turning the other cheek, by repaying Saul's evil with good. He destroys him, exposes his cruelty, exposes his lies. So as spirit-empowered believers, we need to not be mechanical in our interpretation of the law like the Pharisees were. They follow the letter of the law, but we follow the spirit of the law. And the letter, Paul says, kills, but the spirit gives life. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God will repay. Well, what about the second injustice? It was possible in Jesus' day, it's a, it's a quote in our day, but it was possible in Jesus' day to actually sue someone for the very shirt off their back. You could do that. However, you could not take another person's cloak. That was the one thing you could not sue them for. The disciples, very shortly after Jesus' resurrection, are going to experience this sort of injustice. They're going to be uh, tried for all sorts of things. Uh, cruelly, they're going to be murdered unjustly. They will have to face religious persecution for following Christ. Jesus here is commanding his followers to once again reverse the norms of this world. In God's kingdom, when someone persecutes you because of your faith, we should do our best to resolve matters quickly and peacefully as possible. By repaying evil with good, Proverbs 25:22 says this. It says, "You will heap hot coals on their head, and God will reward you for your obedience." The point of this is to show them the love of Christ and to kill them with kindness, so to speak. The Christian form of retaliation is love. We retaliate not with hate, but with love. Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is anyone here today being persecuted because of how righteous you are? I think I see maybe one guy in the back who's his cloak is gone, so maybe that guy is doing it. Not me. Not me. What about, what about well-fed? Are you well-fed? Are you well-dressed? Are you well-liked? Are you well-taken care of? I sure am. I sure am. What about the third injustice? Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. In Jesus' day, Roman soldiers could actually force someone to go a mile with them. Sort of like how in movies, you know, a police officer will show up and go, I need your car. And, and the person's always kind of just like, okay, you know, and hops out in the police car, take the car, and they go. And so a Roman soldier could stop you and say, I need your back. Come with me. You need to carry my luggage. Now, the rule of this was that you were only supposed to go one mile with them. And originally it was 1,000 steps. And the King Agrippa changed it to 5,000 steps, made it a little worse. But you can imagine being a Jew in that time under Roman rule, and you would sit there and go, one, two, three, four. I mean, you would count every single step. And if they're anything like me, I would have taken the luggage and been like, go get it. See you later. Adios. Kick some dirt on it. Because that's how petty I am. <laughs> right? I mean, that, that's what they would do. They would have counted every single step. And yet Jesus says, when something like that happens, don't count the steps. Go the extra mile. 
Don't, don't go just one mile, go two miles. Show your enemies kindness. Heap hot coals on their head with how much you love them. I have so many examples of this in my own life. One time, a friend of mine asked me to help them move. And if you've ever helped someone move, you know it's worse. It's probably one of the worst things that could ever happen to you in your life, to have somebody ask you to help them move. Because not only does, you know, if you move your house, it's your stuff at least. And there's a point to it. But if you're moving someone else's junk, it really gets tiring. It's awful. Well, I said, you know, he's, he's my best friend. I give him an hour. I'll give him an hour. I can do a lot in an hour. Five hours later... <laughs> I, I want to kill the guy. And I'm sitting there going, I can't believe I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get out of this. I can't, you know, he, he offered me pizza. Where's my pizza? There's no pizza. I was counting the steps. I was counting the steps. And I've done that with so many different situations. The pastor, G. Campbell Morgan, says this. He says, the Christly soul, the man in the kingdom, is forevermore overfilling the measure overstepping the necessity, doing that which no man had any right to expect from him. Justice becomes love-lit and full when he interprets it. And here's, here's what he's saying. Here's the meaning. The Christian is always plus towards others. The Christian is always plus towards others and minus towards himself. When the Christian interprets the law through gospel glasses, then true justice is done. True justice is done, and love for God and love for neighbor are prime importance in your life. The final injustice in verse 42 is this. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. One of my professors in college offered me a book for the class because I was always very cheap. I was always uh, selling one class's books to buy the other class's books. I didn't have a ton of money. I was always you know, working hard, and so I, I looked at him and I said, thank you so much for this. I'm just going to give you a heads up. I probably will not return this book. I'll forget. I'll lose it. It may not be great. And my professor looked at me and he said, Heath, the only books that you will get to read in heaven are the ones that people never returned. And that stuck out to me. Because the point I think he was trying to make is that you can't take this stuff with you. You can't take any of this stuff with you. And, and so why on earth do we hold it so tightly? Why are we so fervent about our stuff? You see, God loves a cheerful giver. And so he encourages us here to give, give without expecting anything in return. Give, lend, give your stuff away. Don't expect any return. Because God sees and God repays. If not in this life, then in the life to come for sure. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Well, what about all of the people in this room? Are, are there people in this room who are just extremely merciful, who, who give without asking, without, you know, will lend anything? And if so, could you please find me? I'd like to borrow $500 after the service. I, I may not give it back, but if you could come to me, that would be, be great. What about stingy lenders? Are there any of those here today? I've got bad news, and then I have more bad news for us. So which one do you want first? The first bit of bad news is that's the first half of the text. And if I hold my own heart up to God's law, to Jesus' standards, I'm, I'm miserable. I'm miserable. I'm, I'm, I'm crushed. And the other bit of bad news is that it just gets worse 
in the second half. So let's, let's go together. Matthew 5, 43. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Once again, where have they heard this said? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. The first part of the phrase is biblical. It's Leviticus 19.18. It says, You must not take vengeance... Or bear a grudge against the children of your people, but you must love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, you notice the second part is missing about hating your enemy. And that's because the Pharisees, the religious leaders, took this and they go, Okay, I love my neighbor. That must mean I subsequently hate my enemies. Well, who are my enemies? Well, Samaritans, Gentiles. Got it. That's why Jesus, in Luke 10, the expert in the law, comes to him and he's going to test Jesus. And he says, okay, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he asks at the end, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of Robert? And you can almost imagine the expert in the law begrudgingly saying, the one, the one who had mercy on him. The one who had mercy Because all of us, again, when we're faced with the law, have to admit of our own sin. And so Jesus flips, flips the mechanical, man-centered interpretation on its head by telling the people to love their enemies and to pray for them. Well, the question for us probably is not so much who is our neighbor. We know that. The question that is really good for us instead is who is our enemy? Who have I failed to love and pray for? Who have I failed to value and treat with dignity because I saw them as less? But when I first asked myself this question, I said, I don't have any enemies. Everyone loves me, and I love everyone else. Which is just the most prideful, self-righteous thing I could have said. Because of course I have enemies. Everyone has enemies. Some of you sit around dinner tables every single night with your enemies. Some of you woke up this morning and looked in the mirror and saw your biggest enemy. Sometimes our enemies are our wives, or our husbands, or our kids, or even, yes, our real-life neighbors, who can be our enemies. And yet Jesus commands us to love these hard-to-love people. Why does, he, why does he command us? Verse 45, So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We refer to this bestowing of blessings upon all people, sinner and saint, as common grace. And the idea is that even an unrepentant murderer could walk out into the yard of the prison and enjoy the sunshine. And then miles down the road, the person, the family of the person that he killed could walk out and enjoy the sunshine as well. In both cases, neither deserve it. And in both cases, they receive grace from God, a common grace to all mankind. This is mercy, and this is love beyond human comprehension. It doesn't make sense to me. It's love for God's children. We are instructed now to model our Father. To model our Father in a way we love and forgive, and when Christians speak, our language is to be the language of love towards others. On our own, this instruction to love our enemies is impossible. 
And this is again where the slippery slope of personal ethics comes into play, thinking that we could ever do this without God working in us. Because love for enemies is supernatural. It's supernatural, godly love, and it's given to us. At our best, on my best day, I am a poor lover. I only love God because He first loved me. I think about myself often above others, to my great shame. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. Not too long ago, there was the anniversary of the Charleston church shooting, which you may remember, where Dylan Roof walked into a church prayer meeting. Nine people were there, and he shot... I'm sorry, there was many people there, but he shot nine people who he prayed with. He killed them. And in his court hearing, those same members of the meeting got up on the microphone, and they looked him straight in the face, and they said, We forgive you, and we love you. And if you've never watched that video, it's almost like a gospel beam of light shoots through the screen and pierces your heart. Because that love does not make any sense. It is so counterintuitive to what the world tells me to do. The world tells me to hate that man, not love him, not pray for him. And yet those people looked at him, his cold face, and they said, we love you. We forgive you. This is how the members, I mean, this is how believers with gospel DNA only by the grace of God can fall to our knees truly with sincere hearts and pray for those we disagree with. Pray for our enemies. It's supernatural. Verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that, Jesus says. It's, it's easy often to love those who love us, but it's hard to love our enemies. It's hard not to want to ignore them. It's hard not to want to block them on Facebook and snooze them. It's hard to interact with some people, and it's even harder to wish good over evil for those people. It's hard to love. Well, thanks be to God, there's only one verse left because my sinful heart, cannot take too much more conviction. Verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm out. I can't do this. I I don't turn the other cheek. I consistently resist the evil person. I want to fight for my rights. I, I don't want to give any of my stuff away. I love my stuff. I rarely go the extra mile. I don't lend things out because guess what? I'm tired of not getting them back. I don't love or pray for my enemies like I should. And now, be perfect. There's no way I can do this, and it's exhausting to think about. Well, now I have good news, and then I have more good news. Which one do you want first? The first bit of good news is that it's finished. Jesus has already done these things perfectly. He's already fulfilled the just requirements of the law once and for all, in my stead, in my place, in your place, if you're a believer. And the second piece of good news is that all of us who have put our faith in Christ, who have clung to the cross, who have realized that all of our deadly doing was killing us, have been given His perfection, His righteousness, by grace, through faith. 
His yoke is not exhausting. His yoke is what? Light and easy. Think of the four injustices again now. But instead of me, instead of you, I want to put Jesus in the other place. Verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek also. This is Matthew 26, 67. Then they spit in his face and they struck him with their fists and others slapped him. Isaiah 50 verse 6 is a messianic prophecy and it says this. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. I want you to consider the humiliation of Christ the King who bore the slap of shame in our place so that we would never, ever have to be ashamed. Romans 10, 11, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. The second injustice, verse 40, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Matthew 27, 35, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Isaiah 61.10, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Christ takes our filthy rags and he gives us his robe of righteousness. This is the great exchange. The righteous for the unrighteous, the ungodly for the godly, and now we're justified by God and clothed by Christ forever. The third injustice, verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. John 4, 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. John 19, 16 through 17. Then Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified, and the soldiers took him away. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Emmanuel, God with us, puts on flesh, dwells with his people, goes the extra mile every single time. Takes our place, goes in our stead to the cross. And he humbles himself to the point of death. The Bible says, yes, yes, even death on a cross. The fourth injustice. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Luke 11, 9 through 10. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. In the most scandalous, earth-shattering, monumental act of debt forgiveness, Christ takes our bankruptcy, he takes all of our debt, cancels it out, and then fills our banks full with his righteousness. The charges against you nailed to the cross. Nailed to the cross forever. Gone. And if that wasn't enough, now God the Father invites us. Once enemies, now he adopts us 
as his own children. What about the final thing, loving enemies and praying for those who persecute you? Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Romans 5, 10, for if, for if, while you were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So what's the application for all of us today? It's, it's love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's so simple. If you want to know how to love your neighbor, you can go Google it. <laughs> but the true application, which you can't Google, is the same every single week. The true application is that if we want to look like Christ, we have to look to Christ. And we need to hear that weekly. Because my tendency, whenever something goes wrong, whenever I'm faced with persecution, whenever I'm faced with some, somebody in my life who's hard to love, my first inclination is to look to myself. It's my first inclination is to look inward rather than to the cross. So we need to look to Jesus. His burden is light. His grace is sufficient. And his love is better than life. This is how, finally, when we get to the last verse, it's actually not exhausting. Verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's not exhausting. The Greek word for for perfect actually gives off the idea of completeness. And so what Jesus is saying is, you've seen the love of the Father, haven't you? You've seen the love of God, how he loves his enemies, how he forgives those who ask for it. You've experienced it, and now as sons and daughters, be complete. Be complete in your Father's love. And as you are complete in your Father's love, you can go love others. He's not putting forth some idea of sinless perfectionism. Instead, he's calling us as believers to take up our crosses and to follow him, to walk in his footsteps and love like he loves. Philippians 3, 12 through 14 spells this out perfectly. It sums it up. It says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's the kicker. Because Christ has made us his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so my prayer today, my simple prayer for all of us, is this. Ephesians 3, 16-19, this is our prayer. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know his love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. When you are rooted and established in the love of God, you will find yourself naturally, without coercion, turning the other cheek. 
You'll find yourself going the extra mile, giving generously, loving your neighbors, loving your enemies, praying for them, and praying for those who persecute you because the love of Christ will compel you. And friends, when you find yourself doing these things, rejoice. Rejoice that you are counted as one of the number, that Christ is working in you, that the Holy Spirit is transforming you into Jesus. If you do not know this love of Christ, if you do not know what I've been talking about today, then I plead with you on behalf of Jesus himself, be reconciled. Be reconciled to God. Turn away from yourself. Turn towards the cross. Jesus is in the business of turning enemies into sons and daughters. And I could say business is booming. (laughs) May be forever blessed. Let's pray.